for a moment or two in his presence. Just the consciousness, the presence of God the Father in his Holy Spirit. How wonderful it is. How priceless. How beautiful. peace-producing within our lives. Father, we bless you tonight for your Holy Spirit. We bless you for your presence in our lives. And we read about that in your word, and we understand it theologically, but it's good to just stop and consider how real and practical it is in our lives. Thank you for what you bring to our lives, Lord, by your Spirit. And we thank you tonight that as we turn to your Word that we don't have to turn to it with the limitations of our ability to understand what it is that you're saying through it, but that your Holy Spirit will teach us. And we ask that he would teach us this evening. Speak to our hearts what each of us needs to hear from you. Thank you that you can teach an entire room of people individually, Lord, by your Spirit. We want you to know that we are very thankful for your Word. We don't know where we would be if we did not have this Bible in our hands and if it was not in our language, Lord. The privilege it is ours to read it and study it every day Thank you for that. And then, Lord, we thank you for the blessing of being able to study it together with your people. And even especially on these Sunday nights as we kind of quietly and often kind of a corner almost in the city and even within the church itself and look deeper into the things of you. Bless us as we draw nigh to you tonight, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. Matthew chapter 21 this evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and uh, flag them and get their attention. They'll put a Bible in your hand tonight. And if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord personally to you this evening. We pick things up in chapter 21 of Matthew's gospel, verse 18, and uh, we're told now in the morning, and we remember that Jesus is now, in terms of the record of his life and his public ministry, which encapsulated three and a half years, he is now in the very last week of his life before his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He has made his triumphal entry on the Sunday before the cross, as we saw last week, and uh, cleared the temple uh, of its thievery and of the misrepresentation of God, uh, uh, as well as a part of that. And uh, then he left on that day, went over to Bethany to stay, doubtless in the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And now on the next day, the Monday, he returns back into the city of Jerusalem. And in the morning, as he returned to the city, uh, there, remember there were no um, McDonald's or drive-through you know, places to grab a quick breakfast and all. He was hungry, and I like that word hungry. It makes us realize that Jesus experienced in his incarnation everything that we do in addition to hunger. And so here he is. He's hungry. He's in need of of fuel for his body, for what lies ahead that day. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it, and he found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. And we're told in Mark's gospel that by the time they passed by the next day, the tree is completely withered, and the disciples uh, pointed it out. And the disciples, when they saw it, they marveled, saying, uh, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? Now, Jesus is facing the opposition of the Jewish religious leaders 
in earnest at this particular point in time. The fig tree throughout the Old Testament represents the nation of Israel. And uh, here that it is, the, this fig tree is symbolic, uh, physically symbolic of what Israel was at this time spiritually. It was barren. It was all leaves and no fruit. And that was, you know, against all kind of odds in terms of what God had called them to do and to be. He gave them the privilege of being his people uh, in the world, that they would be able to be a distinctive people, distinctively blessed by God, and that the whole world would then see God in them, be drawn to God and a relationship with God as well. And they're failing miserably in that. A lot of leaves, but no fruit. And the culprits, primarily related to all of this, were the Jewish religious leaders of the day. The Sadducees, who were the theological liberals of the day. The Pharisees, who were the legalists among the Jews of that day. The Herodians, who were uh, a Jewish sect that was given over to politics, so to speak. And so here you have Israel called to represent God, and yet there is no representation of God because of legalism, because of liberalism, and because so many Jews had been taken over by a whole political movement related to, to Rome. Those are the same things that we fight even today so that we don't become sterile as Christians and as the body of Christ in the world today. Legalism will make us sterile. Liberalism will make us sterile if we decide that the answers to our problems and the world's problems are government rather than God himself. If we do that supremely, by the way, I'm all for government. It's an institution of God. God tells us to submit to it. I have voted every election of my adult life. I've never missed one time. I believe in all of that, but that's not where my hope lies. It's an important influence to be salt and light, but that's, we don't want to become identified, and we very much have been within our culture identified supremely as a political movement or an arm of a political party rather than representatives of Christ. It will make us fruitless before the world that we're trying to reach. And so this is what the religious systems of the day had done. The same temptations are faced by every Christian today, every leader of any church or denomination today, same temptations to go down uh, that path. And so that tree had been created by God for the purpose, not merely of producing leaves, but also producing fruit. And it was not doing, uh, accomplishing the reason for which it had been created. Israel was in the same state. They were not producing the fruit that they had been created to produce. And so Jesus cursed the tree, and there is a curse on anything, any uh, body of Christians, any local church, any denomination uh, that uh, moves away from uh, faith in Christ, moves away from obedience to his word, moves away from the commission that we've been given to be uniquely what we're supposed to be as Christians in the world, not by our own definition, but by biblical definitions, and then that's going to become sterile and ultimately be cursed. And so here they were, the religious systems of the Jews, they were great at producing leaves. It looked like these people knew God. It looks like they knew religion. It looked like they were the way to come to know God. And yet to come into contact with them in Jesus's day was to be left further away from God than if you had never run into them at all. They know how to, they, their entire system was given over to outward appearances of giving the appearance of knowing God and being relationship with him. But when you look right below the surface, there was no fruit. There was no relationship with God. And so it's a picture of the judgment that God was going to knew that, uh, that uh, Jesus knew that God was going to bring upon those religious systems and uh, as a result of their fruitlessness. And so Jesus, in effect, says to the tree, in essence, uh, I'm not going to let you fool people anymore. 
not even concerning a, uh, a fig. And so here you are, you give the appearance of being that if we come near to you, you're going to give us a fig. And his statement is essentially the same thing to the Jewish religious leaders. You give the appearance that if people will approach you, they'll learn something about God. They'll be able to come closer to God, but that isn't true. I'm not going to let you fool people anymore. He cursed the tree, and then a curse came, uh, of course, upon uh, upon them and their systems a little further on, culminating, you know, uh, you know the highest expression of it uh, probably in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD at the hands of the Roman uh, government. And so Jesus then answered. They looked at the fig tree, the disciples, the next day and said, what in the world happened? We've never seen a fig tree dry up and wilt, you know, in 24 hours in this way. And so Jesus answered, and he said to them, verily, verily, I say to you, it says assuredly in my new King James, but sometimes I just miss the old verily, verily. You know what I'm saying? All right. So verily, verily, I say to you, in other words, listen up. This is important. If you have faith and do not doubt, then you, uh, you will know, you will not only do what is done uh, to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And he said further, whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now, I want you to circle at least in your mind and maybe in your Bibles, in verse 21, that word faith. Assuredly, I say to you, if you will have faith and do not doubt, in verse 22, the word prayer and whatever things you ask in prayer. So here they are, they're marveling related to all of this, and Jesus is now going to give them instruction. He moves right to the spiritual side of things. The key to being spiritually fruitful uh, in representing God, spiritually fruitful as a Christian, as a person who claims to represent God, is number one, faith, and it is faith in God. They developed the religious system, and they turned it away from supremely being about God to being about their religious system and about their sects and becoming mediators between people and God. And so Jesus is in essence telling them, listen, you want to make a difference? You want a supernatural life? You want your life to be uh, characterized by, uh, you know, the supernatural and the miraculous? Then don't put your faith in religious systems. Don't put your faith in denominations or non-denominations or people that, uh, even wonderful people that claim to represent me. Put your faith in God. God is the power. God is the one. He is the source of all of these things. Everyone else is on such a lower level below him. It's the finite in comparison to the infinite. And so here the key to fruitfulness is to have my own relationship with God and to have faith in God and then to step out in faith on, uh, related to what I know about him. Here is the, when he talks about, uh, you know, not doubting and, and you'll not only do to the fig tree what is done here, but you'll be able to move mountains. In other words, even the impossible will uh, not be impossible to you. And, and so the, the issue when he's talking about having faith in God, the idea is not to get this feeling, this faith feeling. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. I think I can, I think I can, I know I can, I know I can. Oh, my, yes. Now, waiting for that emotion. Faith is to take a promise from God in his word and then to claim that promise in whatever circumstance I find myself in and then hold on to that promise and believe in it and then wait until every, any and every miracle that has to occur to occur in order for that promise to come to pass in our lives. So have faith in God, Jesus spoke elsewhere in his ministry. So the importance of faith 
and whatever has to happen in terms of a fig tree or in terms of moving a mountain for God to fulfill that promise, he will do that. And then the second thing that he speaks about here is the importance of prayer. So a, a fruitful Christian life is one that is lived in faith in God's Word and is also marked by prayer conversation with God, asking God uh, to do things, asking in faith. That's where, uh, f- that's where uh, fruit is found in this relationship. The Jewish religious systems of the day, they had turned away. It was a faith in them, faith in the systems, prayer that were ritualistic and so forth, rather than what Jesus is talking uh, about here. Now, in verse 22, it is important, especially if you're a little bit new to the Bible. It seems like a very broad promise. And Jesus said, and whatsoever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. So, I came to church tonight with a, uh, in a Honda Accord. Nice little four-cylinder, you know, it's only two or three years old and everything and all, but I'm going to walk out to a Bentley because <laughs> I'm believing that silly little thing is going to turn into a Bentley or a Land Rover as if I could afford to even tune those things up if I owned one. But it isn't saying that we can do that, that kind of, of a thing. Remember, Jesus is speaking to the disciples. And a disciple is someone who denies themselves, take up, takes up their cross, and follows after him. In other words, our life is lived in submission to his, his will uh, for my life. So God doesn't give us prayer in order to put us in the driver's seat, and we now boss God around in terms of our life. Uh, here is the prayer of someone believing and then receiving, and then I think uh, very specifically believing in some promise of God. You can't believe in anything higher than a promise of God. Even to believe in, uh, in to believe that my Honda Accord is going to turn into a Bentley. I mean, as amazing as that might be to believe in, that is dwarfed by uh, simply taking any promise of God and then believing in it. And, uh, and the quality of life that comes out of that, the mir- miraculous that comes out of it. And so this asks us here tonight, and it, and it searches our lives, and we want it to search our lives. And it asks us about our own walk with the Lord tonight. And is our life fruitful? Is there fruit in our life as Christians? Is there evidence of Christ's likeness? Has my life changed as a result of becoming a Christian? Is it continuing to change? The distance between the life that I'm living in obedience to God's Word and what the Word of God calls me to as a Christian, that gap should always be narrowing the entirety of our Christian life. It should never stay the same, and it certainly should never broaden. That should never become a greater distance. And yet, we all know as Christians, the temptation can be to stop growing. And then we say, I'm content with this Christian life. I'm not going to grow or begin to compromise and go back into things that were once a part of our lives, and God took them out of our lives, and we reintroduced them. That gap should always be narrowing all the way to the day that we go to be with the Lord. And so to ask ourselves tonight, is there fruit? What is the fruit that we're, you know, looking for? Well, the fruit of the Spirit, as it's described in Galatians chapter 5, which is all a description of Jesus. We should be growing in Christ-likeness. People should be able to come to us individually as Christians. I call myself a Christian and I call myself a part of the body of Christ. I claim to be a representative of God in the world, and they ought to be able to come to my life and then receive refreshment. There ought to be an evidence that I am a different kind of person than the kind of person that the world uh, produces. And so the importance of that, it is very easy to learn, even as a Christian, to fall prey to the same thing that the Jewish religious leaders did, and that is to learn how to play the game how to give the appearance of life, to give the appearance of, uh, 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 of leaves here, but no fruit. And ultimately, if a person stays in that place, God will step in and he will expose us because he's going to say something like, I don't want people coming to you 
as you claim to represent me and with the idea that they're going to learn more about me when you're all leaves and you're no fruit and the contact with you doesn't leave them better, but it leaves them worse. So the passage is a wonderful thing, and it's a searching passage for our, our lives tonight. I'll tell you, I've walked with the Lord since 1980, and I've, I've, been, I've had my, all my ups and downs and all the different things like everybody else does. But the number of people I know who are still walking with the Lord and are still growing in their relationship with the Lord from back in 1980, they aren't that many. They aren't that many. Most people grow cool, they grow lukewarm, or they decide they want to have Christianity on their terms and uh, they stop growing or they just go back. They've got their fire insurance. They go back to the life that they were living. And it doesn't, dis- it doesn't please the Lord, and it's important that we be aware of that uh, today. Think about how many of you might think, even in your childhood or somewhere in your life, those people that you've watched continue to grow and grow and grow through thick and thin in their lives, through the difficulties, through the hardships, and what a blessing they are, what uh, fruit and refreshment they bring to us. We want to be that to others as well. Now, when he came into the temple, continuation of the morning, the chief priests and the elders of the people, they confronted him as he was teaching. Wow! Wow. Here is Jesus in one of the courtyards in the temple. He has a large group of people that are gathered around him, and he is actively teaching these people about God. And these religious leaders barge in, interrupt him, and they confront him. And it's not an accident. They don't want to catch him off by the side and uh, quietly deal with the issue. They want to make him look bad here, and so they interrupt him. I mean, it's just, so this whole confrontation here and everything that kind of follows here, this is a public event that's going on. There's an audience who is watching all of that. I just can't imagine interrupting Jesus, the level of pride, the level of arrogance that uh, they were feeling to just go in and confront him and interrupt his teaching. And here's what they interrupted him by saying, by what authority are you doing these things? And they're talking about going in and clearing out uh, the temple of all of the money changers and overturning uh, the, the uh, seats of those that sold doves there. And who gave you this authority? So they're wanting to know who gave you permission to do what you did at the temple. And, uh, and remember, Jesus did not possess any of the theological degrees that um, these religious leaders did. These religious leaders were acknowledged as uh, religious experts based upon the fact that they were, uh, you know, disciples of Hillel or disciples of Rabbi Shimei or someone else. And so how it is it that you went up here, who gave you the permission Who gave you the theological degree to do what it is that you're doing? Something about uh, coming from heaven as the Son of God that kind of takes care of that, but this is what they're, they're asking him. And Jesus then answered, we're told, but Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing. You're full of questions. Uh, which if you tell me, you answer my question, then I likewise will tell you by what authority uh, I do these things, by what authority I cleanse that uh, temple a second time. And here's the question that he posed. The baptism of John, that is John the Baptist, uh, where was it from? Was it from heaven or from men? And so here again, it's a public setting, and the essence is, you know, what do you think about the ministry of John the Baptist? He didn't have any degrees. Uh, he didn't have any of that kind of background, and yet he fulfilled his ministry. Did he have authority from men, or did he have authority from God in doing what he was doing? Well, they called a little uh, unholy huddle, and they reasoned among themselves, this is just awful, really. <laughs> And they said, well, listen, if we say uh, that John and in his baptism, his authority, that it came from heaven, then Jesus is going to say to us, then why then didn't you believe him and believe him, what, 
believe him concerning what John the Baptist said concerning the authority of Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist declared to everyone that he was the promised Messiah, that he was the Son of God and God the Son. And so they said, if we, if we declare that he, he had heavenly authority, then we would have to believe his assessment of Jesus and would have had to accept it. If that's what we say, that's what Jesus is going to say to us. But if we say that his authority came from men, he was a nobody, it was just people that a populist movement that, uh, you know, got some traction, then we fear the multitude because there's a large multitude Jesus is teaching there for uh, everyone counted uh, John as a prophet. And so they answered to come out of their huddle. They answered Jesus and said, we don't know. Liar, liar. They knew exactly. This is, they're just, you know, playing this uh, game here. And so Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And the reason that Jesus didn't tell them by what authority he did these things is they already had their answer from John. And John's answer concerning Jesus was he was in the world, he was doing, teaching and doing what he was doing with the authority of the Son of God and God the Son. And so, you know, you don't have to answer dishonest questions when people bring them to you. And uh, Jesus knew they weren't being honest, so he dealt with them in this way. And then Jesus, in this context of talking about John, he then heads into what is known as the parable of the two sons. And he said to them now, again, it's a public setting, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and uh, he came to the first, and he said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And the son answered, and he said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it, and he then went to work in the field. And then he came to the second son, and he said, Likewise. And his son answered, I go, sir. I mean, outward respect and the whole thing, but he didn't go. So he said, but he didn't do. And Jesus said, Which of the two did the will of his father? And uh, they then said to him, the first, and Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots uh, enter into the kingdom of God before you, for God came to you in the way of, uh, John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots uh, believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent or repent and believe in him, in the message of John. So again, the context is the ministry of John the Baptist, and he, uh, you know, likens the response of some to the ministry of John the Baptist, and then the response of the Jewish religious leaders to two sons. The first son was told to go and work in the vineyard. He said he wouldn't do it, and he went. The second son said he would go, and then he didn't go. But he paid outward respect uh, to the father. But then behind his back, he didn't go and do the work. And it was a picture of the ministry of John the Baptist and who uh, uh, the impact of the ministry, uh, the sinners as he talks about, the harlots, the tax collectors, and so forth. Apparently, initially, when they heard the message of John the Baptist, they were a little bit put off by it. Uh, repent, uh, you know, the kingdom of God is at hand, and he's, uh, you know, pronouncing these kind of woes, most especially on the religious leaders, but he's calling people to God at a time uh, where they were far from God, and uh, though involved in religion. And so these tax collectors and these harlots, notorious sinners, according to that culture, initially they said no, but then they came, and they came in droves now to repent under the ministry of John the Baptist. The religious leaders showed up on the scene, and they gave the outward appearance of agreeing with what John was teaching, but then they never did what John called them to do, and that was to repent of their sin, to turn from it, and then get right with, uh, with God. And so he, uh, he, he con uh, confronts them and, uh, uh, with the fact that they were, you know, merely lip service here, speaking, but they didn't do what, uh, you know, what they, they were saying, uh, again, in, in the context of 
the ministry of John the Baptist. And so God puts a premium, uh, not uh, supremely upon what we say, but rather upon ultimately what we do. Isn't it nice to know that there are U-turns in Christianity? So here's a son who begins wrong, uh, characterizing the harlots and the tax collectors, kind of what would be considered the low life of that culture, and they begin wrong, and uh, they say the wrong thing, they think better of it, and then they turned to God. And uh, nice to know that about any decision that we make in life, God does allow U-turns. In fact, he allows a lot of them. Uh, get out of the roundabout and, you know, back to God if, if you need to. If you've made a wrong decision uh, and, and all, uh, don't hold into that. Now say, all right, I said the wrong thing. I made the wrong decision, but it's not too late uh, to do the right thing here in God's eyes and then to do it. God values what we do over what we say when forced to choose between the two. And then he said, here now, another parable. Again, public setting. These people, they just got, the audience has got like Marty Feldman eyes. Nobody, you know, under 40 will understand that. But I mean, they're just glued to everything that is going on. This is like a massive power encounter, a theological debate, you know, that, that is going on. They just came to hear maybe a little bit of a devotional from Jesus that morning or whatever. Now they're getting treated to this whole amazing thing, and, and it must be important for our lives too, and that's why it's recorded in the Scriptures. And so Jesus said, uh, hear another parable. He said, there was a certain landowner, and all of this speaks of the nation of Israel. There's a certain land uh, owner, and the landowner uh, represents God in the parable, who planted a vineyard, and the vineyard represents the nation of Israel, common imagery in the Old Testament. And that landowner not only planted a vineyard, he brought Israel into existence, but then he set a hedge around, uh, around that uh, vineyard, and that hedge represents the law of Moses that was given to the children of Israel to provide a wall of separation from the paganism and, and so forth of the world. It was, a, it was a means of keeping them separated in a, in a healthy way and protected. The landowner also dug a wine press and uh, uh, in in it, in other words, Israel was intended to be uh, fruitful, spiritually speaking. He also built a tower, uh, speaking of God's protection of the nation of Israel through the ages. And then he leased it to the vine dressers who uh, are re represent the Jewish religious leaders here in the parable. So all of this belongs to God. And then, uh, then he went into a far country. And we know that Jesus, in his first coming, came to the earth and did what he did, and now he's gone to a far country, which is heaven, and he's going to return one day. So here you've got this vineyard. It is absolutely decked out. It is provided with everything that is necessary by the vineyard owner for it to be fruitful and, uh, and, and to, to be bearing uh, fruit. Nothing has been uh, left out. All of it belongs to the landowner. All of it belongs to God. Israel belonged to God and belonged to God at the time uh, of Jesus and the time of these Jewish uh, religious leaders. So it all belongs to God. And this was a, a, a factor which is like almost unbelievable to think about if we didn't know ourselves so well. How could the Jewish religious leaders who claimed above all other people to represent God, failed to forget that the nation of Israel belonged to God, and the law of Moses belonged to God. The prophets belonged to God. The history of the Jews belonged to God. It didn't belong to them. And what they've done now by Jesus' time is they've hijacked everything from God, hijacked it to themselves, and they're now acting like all of this belongs to them. 
when it actually belongs to God. And this is the setting of what is going on. I mean, imagine Jesus as the Son of God is having to fight with these Jewish religious leaders for the control of what belongs to God. And, uh, and this is what he's, he's bringing out and confronting them with. Now, when the vintage time uh, drew near, and so time to harvest the grapes, uh, the, the landowner, he sent his servants to the vine dressers uh, that, he might, that they might then receive fruit, which was common. And the vine dressers, uh, pictured by the, they were the ones that were leasing the property, the Jewish religious leaders. They took the servants of the landowner and they beat one, they killed one, and they stoned another. And this is the entire picture virtually of uh, being a prophet in the Old Testament. Uh, the Jewish religious leaders through the ages treated God's prophets uh, very, very poorly. Almost none of them were highly esteemed. All of them were faithful to God uh, uh, to uh, the danger of, of life and limb. And so here they were sent in the vine dressers. Uh, they took the servants, beat one, killed one, stoned another. And so God, as he did in the Old Testament, he sent more servants, more prophets uh, to them uh, to, you know, to, to receive the fruit of his people and so forth and uh, more like the first. And they did the, to them what they had done to the very first ones that had been sent. And then at last of all, the landowner sent his own son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come. Let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And so they took him, they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. It's a picture of Jesus' death upon the cross at the hands of the Jewish religious leaders. And therefore Jesus said to them, in applying the parable to them, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? Well, you put yourself in the place. They're just completely thinking about this story that Jesus is telling on a physical level. They do not yet know that he's talking about them and the competition that they represent to God for the hearts and the minds of his people and that what the Jewish people and Jewish religious leaders had done to the prophets all through the Old Testament, they were about to do to the Son of God in crucifying him later in the week. They're not seeing that just yet, and so they're just listening to the story of, the, again, the arrogance, the pride. I mean, they're, they're incensed at the way these vine dressers have, have handled the servants and handled the Son, and they said to him, he will, uh, will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. It's amazing how terrible our sin looks on other people, isn't it, in the, in the story. So they said, uh, you know, the, the owner of the vineyard ought to crush every single one of them for the, how terrible what they've done. And they're just thinking about it on a physical level. And then Jesus now brings the application to them and that they are the ones who are guilty of all of this in the spiritual realm of hijacking Israel, hijacking the law of Moses, hijacking the temple, hijacking God's people away from him unto themselves. And Jesus said uh, to them, he said, have you never read in the scriptures? And of course, that would have been uh, quite an insult to them. Uh, because they considered themselves to be the expert in the Scriptures. Have you never read in the Scriptures? And here he quotes Psalm 118, a beautiful messianic psalm of the Old Testament. And, and this, that psalm declared concerning the Messiah, the stone which the builders rejected. And this is interesting because it's spoken in the context of the Messiah. In other words, 
the crucifying of Jesus at the hands in part by the Jewish religious leaders did not disqualify Jesus as being the Messiah, but they only further proved him to be the Messiah because the Old Testament uh, prophet here, prophecy here in, by David in Psalm 118 declared, in essence, that when the Messiah came, uh, he would be rejected by the builders, by the, the religious leaders of the day. And yet, that same cornerstone uh, or that same stone which the builders rejected, rather, has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, David wrote, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so here you have the religious leaders of the Jews very threatened by the ministry and the existence of Jesus. They wanted to destroy him. They rejected him. All of it was the fulfillment of prophecy. And yet from the vantage point of heaven, he has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's how heaven, that's how God the Father um, uh, views the Son. So the distance between how these religious leaders view Jesus and how heaven views Jesus, two entirely different things. Heaven was rejoicing over him and what he had come into the world to do. And Jesus continued, and he said, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Now, again, this is a large audience. It's a multitude that's watching. And Jesus now applies this to them. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you. You are those vine dressers. We're not gonna, God is not going to let you continue to compete with him for the heart, the mind, the soul, and the strength of his people. And it will be given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. In other words, it will be given to a group of people who are willing uh, to accept and to honor God's prophets and honor his son. And that refers to us in this room today, not just Jews, but also uh, Gentiles. And Jesus is speaking about the expansion of the kingdom of God uh, in an aggressive way to not only include Jews, but also the Gentiles. And then Jesus declared concerning himself as the stone. He said, and whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And so to come to Jesus and to put my faith in him, it requires brokenness. At the very least, it, it, it requires uh, the breaking of my humility. In order for me to put my faith in Christ, I must confess my sinful condition. I am a sinner. I've been less than perfect. I cannot save myself. I am unworthy of heaven. My righteousness is as filthy rags and, and that recognition concerning myself. So I have to humble myself and say, I can't accomplish any of these things. I want these things. And so I put my faith in your son in order that I might be forgiven and that I might be saved because you have done in him and through him what I could never do for myself. It requires humility. And sometimes people can sometimes really have a big problem with that. By the time I heard the gospel and it was like, listen, you're a sinner, you're on your way to hell, and you need a savior, it's like, okay, check, 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 uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. When do we get to the good news here uh, uh, in, in this whole thing? I don't have any argument with that. But there are people in the world. I'm not putting them down. I'm not putting you down if you're that way. Hold on, I'm getting a name. Just stand as I call your name in the service here. Just... And just and then remain standing so we could. But there are a lot of people, you tell them, I'm, I, for 32 years I've been teaching sermons on Christmas, uh, Christmas service and Easter Sunday service, where without fail I mention the fact that we are all sinners. There's none righteous, no, not one. Do you know what an affront that is to some people? Who are you calling a sinner? Because in the culture, we view a sinner as someone who is at least slightly worse than me. We don't understand sin or sinner in its proper understanding, and that is the standard is perfection. Everyone who is not perfect has missed that standard, and thus we are 
all of us sinners. And you mean I can't save myself? I've got to submit myself and so forth. A lot of people have a problem with that. Everyone has to be, everyone who becomes a Christian, it is an expression of brokenness in order to do that. But the alternative is that on whomever the rock, that is Jesus or the stone, falls, it will grind him to powder. And this is speaking of judgment. And every single person in this world will either know Jesus as Lord or as judge. There are no other relationships. One day, every single human being, ourselves included, we will one day stand before Jesus, and he will have one of two positions in our life. Either he will be our Lord or he will be our uh, judge. And, uh, and so it requires humility and brokenness in order to make him our Lord, but that's the preferable thing to do, of course. And then if I face him one day at that white throne judgment, I won't be, by the way. It's not in doubt for a Christian, but when a per- if a person does and they face his judgment, then by comparison, it will be to grind to uh, powder. The judgment will be uh, terrible. Now, when the chief priests and the uh, Pharisees, they heard his parables, they perceived, ah, now they're getting it. (laughs) You know, it's like they're just following along at everything, and they think, oh, we're in parable land. Cool, 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 cool. And uh, now they realize he is speaking of them, and, but when they sought to lay hands on him, and boy, did they want to. They wanted to arrest him and crucify him on the spot, but they feared the multitudes. There a lot of people watching all of this because they took Jesus for a prophet. Now, I want to go uh, a little ways into um, chapter 22 before we uh, close up here uh, this evening. Just give me a moment here, will you? Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, that's where I want to leave. I want to end by heading into here a bit. Jesus gives them another parable known as the parable of the marriage feast. And Jesus answered them, and he spoke to them again by parables, and he said to them. So here's another parable uh, that's uh, being uh, given to them here in this place. And he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king. And Uh, who arranged a marriage for his son. And so here's the opposition of the Jewish religious leaders against Jesus. This is what uh, prompts the parable that he's going to speak here. And what this parable speaks to us is it gives us a glimpse at how God views man's rejection of him and his son and his gospel, his invitation to be saved. And it it is really, really heavy. You think about the indescribable offense that it is to God for someone like me who can barely tell in the darkness of my closet the difference between my navy blue socks and my black socks. I can't keep myself from getting a common cold. And here God gives me the offer of salvation, and I turn my nose up against it. And the problem is, is it's so common in our world. It's so common in our culture that we just kind of get used to it. We recognize that people, everyone, is free to accept God's offer or to reject it, and people do it all the time. But we only think of it most of all, most often is from the vantage point of earth. And it's so common that it doesn't appall us. This parable gives us an understanding of how heaven and how God views the rejection of his son and of his invitation to heaven and salvation from the perspective of of heaven. And it is so important for us to understand. The world we live in is an insane asylum. It is a crazy place. It is spiritually out of their minds. We don't see anything clearly. And so we get used to this idea and so much of this sense, we talk about the uh, sense of entitlement that people 
uh, have today. But we, we grow accustomed to the arrogance of man against God, uh, the uh, willfulness of the rebellion against God and so forth. And we fail to take into account that all of this isn't just being viewed by, by man from the vantage point of earth, but there is this place of perfection called heaven where God is viewing the same thing and it is an appalling thing for even one single human being to reject the offer of salvation that is found in the Son of God uh, through putting our faith in Jesus. And this parable reminds us of that. And so the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king, and the king represents God the Father, who arranged a marriage for his son. Now, a marriage ceremony in those days was like a really big deal. The entire village couldn't wait for who's going to get married next because of all of the food, the celebration, everybody getting together. A really, really big deal. And so everyone would make a point for sure to attend that wedding uh, ceremony, that marriage ceremony. Here isn't just you know, Joe Blow and his wife in some city in Israel, this is the king, and this is the marriage of his son. This is ultra important. And so he arranged the marriage for his son, sent out his servants to call then those who were invited to the wedding. Now, in those days, the word would go out through the village or through the city. There's going to be the wedding day is on this day, and then the day would come, and then another set of messengers would go out and say, the feast is ready, everything's ready, come on. They didn't have refrigeration, so they'd start the day in the morning, they'd slay the ox, get the food together, all of this, and, and so all of it had to happen, you know, that day, and so as soon as the feast was ready and all, then the, the second messengers would go out, let everybody know, now is the time, uh, come on uh, to, uh, to the ceremony. And so he sent out servants to call those who were invited, the whole world is invited to the wedding, and then they were not willing to come. Wow! Again, in the context of earth, for a person to say, I am not willing to accept God's invitation to become the bride of Christ and to be saved, not willing to come. And what an offense. Put yourself in the place of the king because all of you who have married, uh, married off, I, okay, you, you know, I use it in a sanctified sense, a son or a daughter, you know what a big deal that is. You want that day to be so great for your son or your daughter. Anybody can do anything that they may want to do against us as a parent, and they could hurt us, and we wouldn't like it, but we would deal with it. But if on the wedding day of our son or our daughter, somebody does something to ruin it for them, now you got me upset. Now, now you've hurt me in a way that you could never hurt me by doing something to me. And it's the same way that the father views the rejection of his son by anyone. They were not willing to come. And again, he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who were invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. It's all ready now. My oxen, the fatted cattle are killed. Brussels sprouts and lima beans, for those of you who are vegetarians and all, I'll take your portion of the fatted cattle, though. So all things are ready. Come to the wedding. So he continues to invite. And then this second group that was reached, they made light of it. Ah, it's all nonsense, pie in the sky, it's ridiculous. We don't need anything. You're not going to go to the wedding, We're gonna, any of that. And so they went their way, each one to his own farm and another to his business. They considered, you know, these things to be more important than attending the, the, uh, the wedding of, of the son of the king. And the rest, they then seized the servants. And they treated them spitefully, and they killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And that's a good word to circle in the Bible. Our God's uh, furious, and he is furious and very furious 
and will be over the, with anyone over the rejection of his invitation uh, to uh, be saved in his son. And he went out, uh, sent out his armies. He destroyed another powerful word, those murders, and then burned up another powerful word, burned up their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding's ready. But those who were invited were not worthy, talking about the Jewish religious establishment. They were sniffing at the invitation of salvation through Jesus Christ. And so God says, hey, everything's ready. The first group that God invited, they didn't want anything to do with that. And so, therefore, go into the highways, find out who's, you know, walking along the road, who's sleeping along the road, and as many as you find, invite them to the wedding and to the feast. And so, those servants, they went out into the highways, they gathered together all whom they found. All of these people were eager. Forgiveness? God will forgive me? God will love me? God will make me a part of his family? All right, where do I got to go? and uh, excited about the Father and the Son. And uh, so uh, they brought together together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Heaven is going to be filled one day, but it just depends on who's going to fill that. It's very important for us as Christians that when we share the gospel with people and we share God's invitation to become a part of God's kingdom with people. There's a lot of people that are just like the first group that was uh, invited here. A lot of people not willing, just not willing. Some of them are just perfectly honest with you. I believe all of it. I was raised in all of it. I'm just not willing, not willing to submit to that now at this point in my life. And then there are others uh, who take and uh, their business, their farms, their, uh, their, uh, and, and so forth, making money, getting along in the world. That's more important to them uh, than these things. And, and so often when we get done talking to our friends and our relatives and our family and our loved ones and so forth that are in this category, then we kind of shut down. We say, well, they're really, you know, those people all said no, and so what am I going to do? Go on to the next group of people. Don't go silent. Go on to the next group of people. And look around this, uh, uh, all of the lonely people in life. Look at the people who are sitting alone in the restaurant, sitting alone on the bus, sitting alone at the bus stop, uh, friendless, people that nobody goes to. They're overlooked by the culture and so forth. And they're this other group of people. And so often we're trying to get all the hip people and all the cool people and all the successful people and so forth. And then we get stopped by them and we stop sharing. But to keep sharing because there is a group of people who will hear that good news, be excited about it, and take God up on his offer. And these folks are all around, around us in the world around us. You find people in crisis. You find them in a hospital at a time when they're in a medical crisis, a financial crisis, an emotional crisis, a crisis having to do with their children or their divorce or whatever it might be. And here they are in this place and they will listen and the importance then of not just stopping, but looking for that, uh, those people who are in the highways, who are in the byways, who are the good and the bad, but to continue to in, uh, give out the invitation. But when the king came to see the guests, so he comes now, places just jammed, he saw a man, just one, who was there who did not have on a wedding garment. Now, in those days... What kings would do is when you came to a, a wedding feast related to their children is they would give you a garment when you arrived so that no matter whether you were rich or poor or powerful or powerless or educated or uneducated, when you looked at all of the guests that were at the wedding, they were all wonderfully attired because it just covered up, uniformly just covered up what every, everyone was Underneath, And so they were given that kind of a robe. And here is a man who comes into the wedding feast, and he wants to come into the wedding feast on his own terms. He rejects that uh, wedding garment that has been given by the king, and he's in there on his own terms. Did not have on a wedding garment, and the implication is everybody else did. And so the king then says to him, he said, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? 
How, how did that happen? And the man was speechless. There was no reason for it. It was inexcusable. And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called and few are chosen. And here you have a picture of people who want to get into heaven on the basis of their own righteousness, want to get into heaven on their own terms and not on the terms of the king or the son. And so we know in the New Testament that when a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, one of the great miracles that occurs, it's an accounting miracle that happens in heaven. God likes accountants. And it's an accounting transaction that occurs, and that is our sin, all of our liabilities are separated from us as far as the east is from the west. And then the perfect righteousness, the perfect right onness of Jesus Christ is put to our account. So for the rest of this life and all of the life to come, when Jesus look, or when the Father looks at us, he does not see our unrighteousness. He sees the perfection of Jesus' righteousness put to our account. And he, that is the Father, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, the Bible says, to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of Christ in him. And so that accounting occurs. It's put to our account. That is the wedding garment that we receive, the righteousness of Christ. This guy wants to get into heaven. This guy wants to attend the feast on his own terms, on his own righteousness, and the parable makes very clear that nobody wants to find themselves doing that. And the reason is, in the book of Isaiah, it declares that our righteousnesses as people is as filthy rags in the eyes of God. And it's interesting what it says, our righteousnesses, that's us at our best. At our best, our righteousness as, as, as a filthy rag compared to the righteousness uh, of Christ. And so nobody wants to, uh, you know, to try and come into this based upon our own righteousness. Even our best is unacceptable. And so here he is. He wants to get, attend the feast on his own terms. We do not get into heaven on our own terms. We will not experience the marriage supper of the Lamb on our own terms. It has to be on the terms of the King and the Son. And uh, when we do that, hey, everything works out great. Now, verse 14, uh, for many are called, but few are chosen. That troubles a lot of people because um, it, uh, the many are called. The invitation for the gospel goes out to the entire world. But then Jesus says, few are chosen. And we know from Romans chapter 8, uh, there is this thing called predestination in the Bible and that God chooses those who are going to be saved based upon his foreknowledge of who he knows will choose him. It gets very, uh, you know, I mean, in terms of the finite trying to have a relationship with the infinite, it gets kind of goofy. So if you look at this, in term, not goofy in terms of him, but in, in terms of us being able to track with him. So when it talks, sometimes this can disturb people, for many are called, but few are chosen. And if you sit here today and you say, oh, I wonder if I'm chosen. Choose him and you'll know you're chosen. You ever watch the show Romper Room? Or Mr. Rogers? I've never been so mesmerized by watching a guy put a sweater on and take a sweater off as an adult, <laughs> watching it with my children. He's so soothing, like that guy, that painter guy. Some people were talking about him the other week. Remember him with that voice and he's painting? I mean, who needs drugs? Who needs Valium? It's just turn that on and just do that. I mean, they don't have to legalize that in Denver and ruin the city. They just run that. Just run it, stream it just all the time on the television there. The healthier way to do that. What in the world was I talking about before I got into all of, uh, all of this here? Well, I was, I was somewhere and it was an unbelievably valuable point that I have uh, lost. No, it's very, the point is it's just very elementary. And it's very basic. And it's very true. It's, it's as simple as I can make it. You choose God. 
and put your faith in Christ, and you'll discover immediately that you have been chosen. It's no more complicated than that. If you sit here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, we've been talking a lot about our religion, religions, and people have grown up, and so many people are trusting in the fact that they grew up in a religion, they are part of a religious system, but they've never been born again, never even heard that you need to be born again in that religious system. It is a fig tree with leaves but no fruit. If you have never had a moment in time in your life where you personally put your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and received and accepted the Father's invitation to relationship with him through his Son, then do it tonight. And there'll be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service who'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God. It is such a heavy thing to sniff at the offer of God of salvation and the forgiveness of sins. I hope none of us will be guilty of it in this room or anyone who ever hears this Bible study. It is a privilege to know him. It is a privilege to take God up on his offer and his invitation. If you need prayer for anything tonight, these same men and women would love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, what a rich passage we've looked at tonight. Thank you. And here we are. We're, we really are the proverbial frog that is boiling in, in the water that's being turned up ever so slowly. And how we treasure to be able to turn to your word and allow us to see things with the clarity of heaven and with the sobriety of heaven, with the joy of heaven and uh, the perspective of, of heaven, Lord. And thank you for what this word has done in our hearts tonight. Again, we end our Bible study in the same way we began it, thanking you so much for your word, the revelation that it is to us of you. And we are humbled once again to realize how necessary that revelation is to us and how much we prize it. Thank you for what got pushed out of our lives tonight under the weight and the beauty of your word and what got built in by your Holy Spirit. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Samuel, would you close us?